You're listening to the Back Home Network, presented by Homefield Apparel. Welcome, Hoosier fans, to another edition of Banner Friday, our weekly show talking IU hoops that is presented by our friends at Homefield Apparel and usually reserved just for our private community members. But just like we did last week, we are going to make Banner Friday available in our main podcast feed uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, you know, we canceled AC Radio again last night. The women uh, were playing another ranked team and spanked another ranked team. And so we all wanted to watch that game and then uh, give the floor to the do and the work crew. So we did not have assembly call radio. Uh, we'll get back on that regular rhythm here in the off season, but you know, given just how great uh, the women's team has been this year, it makes sense to, uh, to not hog uh, another night uh, talking about the men, but we do reserve this opportunity on Friday to do that. And so because we didn't have assembly call radio, we're going to put this in the feed And also, you know, we want to give those of you who are not yet in our private community a little taste of the content uh, that's in there. So this is, you know, one of those pieces and the folks who are in the community get the live broadcast of this and can interact and ask questions. Uh, You know, we like to talk with Mike DeCourcy. We've been bringing in other guests like we are today with John Gassaway. Um, And really, you know, that's just a taste because you've also got Tony Adrania's IU Film Room, Coach Tonsoni's Coach's Corner. I write some statistical deep dive articles and then just all the daily conversations, uh, you know, with members about the men's team, about the women's team. Uh, so there's a lot going on in our community. And right now we have a free trial. It's basically a two month free trial. So you can check out the community through the rest of the season and figure out if you like it. And if you do stick with us through the off season and into next season. Uh, and if you don't, you know, no harm, no foul, uh, as they say, especially in the big 10, I suppose that, uh, that quote works. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, we hope you'll join us, but it's assemblycall.com slash community. That's the URL. It should be pretty self-explanatory from there, how you join. We just had two new members join uh, earlier today. Uh, so there's all, we're always getting new members in there. The conversation is great, and we'd love to see you in there with us. So it's assemblycall.com slash community. And while we wait for the great Mike DeCourcy to join us here for a discussion about IU hoops and Big Ten hoops, let me introduce my co-host today, the great coach Tom Sony. Coach, what's happening? We didn't uh, we didn't get the privilege of your thoughts on the Northwestern game, so I suppose as we go through today, uh, we'll be able to get some of your thoughts on how that game went for the Hoosiers. You know, you don't like losing uh, any game, and then when when you make a valiant comeback, and and then it comes short, you make that steal at the end, and you're like, okay, this is going to go our way, and then then you have a, a last second shot go against you. It just it's tough to handle. Uh, but again, we're in games. Uh, we're we're fighting uh, in games. No game's ever going to be perfect. Uh, the concern coming out of it for me is two twofold. We'll answer that through a lot of questions today. But the consistency of play uh, for Indiana—it's been, you know, three wins, but really uh, three and one record. But really four halves of good basketball and four halves of hold your breath basketball. Uh, and we've come out on top in, in three of them, so that, that, that's good. You just wonder how long that can continue before that rears its, its head and really uh, hurts more than just one game. You hope it's just um, – that, that, that's my concern. But, I, yeah, with the way this season has gone, with all the injuries to be sitting here as a five seed in our bracket, four seed in other people's bracket, uh, even after the loss – 
I, I think we all would take it if you dialed this up in the in the off season that we'd lose Hood Shafino X uh, race and and Trace was hurt for a while and we'd be sitting in a, a top twenty position. So I try to remind myself of that, uh, even though yeah. it was it was tough to watch. Yeah, and look, you know, you go on the road for two games at Michigan, at Northwestern. Michigan, certainly with the talent to beat you, Northwestern, definitely with the experience, especially in the backcourt and the scheme to beat you. And I think we all entered that hoping to get one. And Indiana got one, you know, and both games had some similarities in terms of slow starts and battling back and... You know, you get into close games like that, and in in games that go like that, that are that close, that go down to the wire, you should win about fifty percent of them. And one of the things you know, I want to talk to Mike DeCourcy about is I think Northwestern is seven and one in Big Ten games decided by six points or less. Uh, so they are definitely living on the right side of variance. Uh, you know, close game variance as the season goes along. But there's also something to that that they have experienced guards, and you tend to win more of those games when you have uh, experienced guards. So. Yeah, you know, I'm with you. I think as we often talk about with this team, it kind of feels like the context for what we just saw will be a little bit easier based on what we see next. And as long as Indiana right. can go take care of business at home against Illinois, you know, I think it'll it'll be much easier to kind of look in the rear view and see, hey, okay, you know, we had these two games, we won one of them, and uh, and things are okay. And so with that said, ladies and gentlemen, here with us, he is a longtime writer for the Sporting News, an analyst for the Big Ten Network, and of course, he's the Mike that we all want to be like. It is the great Mike DeCourcy joining us here on Banner Friday. Mike, how are you doing? Thanks so much Hello, for being guys. here. guys. How are you? We're good. Good. We're good. Uh, so, Mike, let's start out talking about you know that game that we saw Wednesday night in Evanston. Uh, just curious, what were your takeaways from the conclusion of that game? Well, I, I think the first was because it was most recent, the fact that they came back at all and made it as close as they did and nearly won the game. You have to give them a lot of credit for having the ability to believe that on the road down 20 to an NCAA tournament team that they could come back, and and they did. And they were right there and, and could easily have won that game. And so I think that because that's what's freshest, that's the first element of it. I, I obviously a game that against that team of all the teams you will play in a season, they do as well defending the post as any team in the country. They they have really sharp with, with Nicholson as the base, so it's and, and he has good enough feet to keep keep himself behind the the opposing big guy in this case Trace. And with it, as quickly as they come and from the angles that they come, as aggressively as they come, they, they make it very difficult for that player, the post player, usually Trace in this instance, to, to make a productive play, to go, to, to go beyond abandoning, abandoning the ball. Uh, and they also uh, make it difficult uh, for, for you to get, because it's difficult to get to do more than just get it out of that trap, uh, it, it's hard for you to get to the open shooter in time for him to shoot a comfortable shot. And I think you saw that in reflected in Miller's numbers 
on on Tuesday, what was it, Wednesday night, Tuesday night, whatever night Wednesday it was. Night. So they all blend uh, together this time of year. Oh, absolutely, man! <laughs> I never know what day it is except Friday because I get to be with you guys. Uh, and, and and Big Ten uh, today, the, the Fridays are a busy day, uh, uh, and they're a good day because I get to talk about hoops all day. Uh, but the fact that he only had eleven field goal attempts on a night when he shot basically 70% says this isn't, this isn't ideal. It was, it was a tough game. Um, the fact that there wasn't anybody who was able to take advantage of that absence of attention or that they weren't able to position anybody to take advantage of that. You, you wound up three of 11 from three point range. Miller was one of four. Jalen was one of four. Trey was one of two. Tamar basically just didn't get anything done. And he was out. If it had been, no minutes. It's one thing, but he was out there 16 and just couldn't get shots. And again, that comes down to how effectively they, they were able to uh, trap the post. I think there were a couple things Indiana could have done earlier to, to sort of negate that or counter that. One of them was pushing the ball a little bit uh, more in transition. I don't think they did that enough. Uh, and, and they and they had 31 defensive rebounds to five offensive rebounds from for Northwestern. So, I mean, I, I know Northwestern. That meant Northwestern was getting back, but there are still ways you can hit them in the secondary break and that sort of thing. And didn't see a lot of that. They they were more or less content, if not content, then resigned to playing at Northwestern's pace. And with a player like Jalen and with guys who run like Trey. I think they could have done a little better with that than they did uh, in the, in, in the second half. I thought they did a remarkable jo- job of coming back and uh, look, they lost to a good team on the road and it's, it's what's going to happen. The, you know, at least half the time, if you, if it happens half the time in league play, you lose to the good teams on the road, you're in contention for the league title. Uh, that's, that's how it works in major conference basketball. So, I, I wouldn't be too concerned about that. I would be just more focused on you have to have teams, you have to have your guys recover and, and protect home court. That's what has Maryland in the position they're in now because all they've done really is protect home court. You get them out of Xfinity Center and not a lot happens. And they we've seen them just play abysmally outside of Xfinity Center at times, not as much lately. They've They've gotten a little better. But – that you know, protecting that home court has been the soul of the Maryland season. So I would say that uh, that's something that becomes very important when you have a team like Illinois coming in. Mike, I want to piggyback on Indiana's play the last four games. Indiana's three and one. Take that anytime in Big Ten. They've been on a good stretch, but it seems like they've been wildly inconsistent in the wins at home against Purdue and Rutgers, great first halves. And then it seems like they, they're a little sluggish in the second half and just hang on opposite on the road, poor start at Michigan, come back from down 11, win a game at the buzzer down 20 to Northwestern in the first half, come back in the second half. Is that Indiana? Is it the opponents they're playing or is that college basketball where you're going to go in these wild spurts and, and, and then depending on where you go with that, does Indiana need to straighten that out in order to go uh, deep in, in postseason? Yeah, I mean, I think that they need to be better at, st- at the start of games. Uh, they, weren't, they were not ready for Michigan at all. And, and it's not like Michigan brought anything surprising or unexpected. 
it, it was just a good crowd. They, it was great atmosphere, but there wasn't much beyond that. And they just weren't ready early. They got blitzed almost from the tip. And so I think those are things that you can address. Uh, you're not going to be extraordinary in every game part of every game, but you can be effective enough to at least, okay, what are they doing to us? How do we figure it out? Deal with those elements. And so I, I think that that's, that's something that they're definitely going to have to, to be better at because when you're in the NCAA tournament, you're playing against teams that are highly incentivized to win and there's there's not that degree of discomfort other than the stakes. You know, different teams handle that differently. But other than the stakes, you're usually playing in an atmosphere that's relatively vacant, depending on which session you are and which time point you are in the session. I mean, think about it. If you're at the noon game in any site, you're probably playing before your fans and their fans, which makes up about uh, maybe – uh, less than less than half the house uh, because the the neutral fans haven't all trickled in yet. Only the basketball junkies are sitting there wanting to be there for four games in a row. You know, all three of us would be there all day, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. So, that, yeah, so there's that. And then there's the fact that uh, the other fans aren't even showing up until it's time for their tip off. The other two, uh, the other two uh, fans of that uh, team's fans of the, of that session. So, They'll they'll eventually roll in and 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 make the game interesting. They'll jump on the underdog if it's competitive, et cetera. But you don't have that atmosphere, so you got to create it for yourself. You got to you got to create that excitement for yourself more more in that circumstance than any other you encounter, except maybe a MTE, a multi team event uh, where you know outside of Maui, where like if you were in the uh, the Phil Knight deal, the PK 85, there, there were a lot of half empty gyms in that deal. So, uh, you know, that's, you just don't encounter that very much as a college basketball player. So it has to be you and your, and your support team, the coaches and, and managers and all that, that get you going. Mike, how much do you think Indiana's inconsistency could be explained by how much they're leaning on two guys? who are keys on both sides of the court and Jalen and Trace and who basically have to play 40 minutes. And at times it feels like in some of these games early, they go all out, all out early and run out of a little bit of gas or on the road. It has seemed to me a little bit like they might even be pacing themselves early and they kind of get it going in the second half. Do you think that's part of it? I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it is still the evolution of Jalen as a full-time point guard. He's been extraordinary. Given his circumstance, he's been extraordinary for a freshman, no matter what. He's been extraordinary given his circumstance that he, although he has point guard experience in the past, he prepped this entire year to be the point guard for what? Eight minutes a game when Xavier wasn't out there. And, and that, and, and that's basically it. And, and also to be the guy who, okay, if the ball comes to him on the break, if he's adjacent to Trace when Trace pulls the rebound, okay, he takes it up and he can run the offense. But it's different to just bring it up and make the first pass to being in complete command of what the offense is supposed to be. And, I, and he, his, his excellence as a basketball player and the demands of a point guard, especially at the college level, aren't always identical. Uh, he is really good at getting his own shot. 
I mean, extraordinary, especially at this level. And there aren't that many, there aren't that many six, five point guards up at the NBA level either. Um, so it, he's really good at that. That's his best asset. And the fact that he's, you know, he can do so many things at his size. He is not, you know, I, ke- I keep telling people that usually when you get a point guard his size, the player is playing that position because he's an unbelievable passer, like Penny Hardaway or like uh, like Magic Johnson. Uh, guys who just are such wizards with the ball that, well, of course you give the basketball to him. Why wouldn't you? He's a, he's a guy who has passing ability, but he's not a wizard at that. So you don't get a lot of those kinds of plays out of him. Uh, where, where you know, no, you know, the next level uh, vision thing, and so you're happy if the ball goes to the right place, uh, and then it cycles back to him. One, and one of the things, other things that he doesn't do a ton of, and I think maybe he should do more, is when you get through that first cycle of an offense, and it gets back to the point guard. There are a lot of times when that player is wide open. Because everything has been designed to drive the attention of the defense toward a particular region. And often the point guard being uh, stationed on the perimeter is the person that the ball cycles back to and and is left unguarded. I think you could punish that more than he does. Maybe he just doesn't feel comfortable taking that shot. But I think he's a good enough three-point shooter that there there could be more occasions where he can take that shot. Because if you do... That makes the defense have to think about so many other things. It's like, oh my gosh, now we got to worry about that. That's what hurts opponents who play Xavier, for instance. Sule Boom, the transfer from UTEP uh, that plays that position for Xavier, is elite at that. And it's made their offense exceptional. So I think that he could he could do a little more with that than he's he's shown himself comfortable to do. And and then I think the other thing that they that they really haven't done offensively enough, and I've been on this for a while, is you've got a 46% three-point shooter who's basically in a lot of ways, I mean, I don't want to be too, but he's like an oasis. I mean, there's there's a lot of guys around who can play, but not a lot of guys around him who can really shoot it. But you've got a 46% guy in Miller Cop, and his attempts just aren't at the level that that would, that, that that would say, um, that you would say, oh, God, we got to get this guy shots. They don't work hard enough to do that. It, they, they, a lot of times just station, sometimes they'll station him opposite Trace in a corner or something like that. They don't move him enough. Uh, they don't screen for him enough. I, I think he needs to get more shots. Now, if he gets more shots, he's probably not shooting 46 anymore. It's probably going to go down a little bit. But a 42% guy with 150 attempts or 175 attempts, he's scoring a lot of points for you. I, I just think their offense would be so much more prolific if you were in that circumstance where Miller was more than just a, oh, by the way, he's open and nobody's nobody's got a chance to close, so he might as well shoot it. Amen to that. <laughs> you're, you're talking our language, Mike. Um, I, I'm going to shift to something back to that Northwestern game that happened and uh, there, there's several layers to this this question, but uh, Indiana received two technicals uh, while the game was 
you know, getting a little bit out of hand. And sometimes coaches will do that to, to motivate their team. But this was an assistant. And, and then Coach Woodson reached out and, and touched an official. Uh, so that was warranted, I thought, by the official. Uh, you had a play late that uh, could have been called maybe uh, uh, an offensive push-off on Bowie to, to, to be nice. But then you have our our fan base. I see it uh, with our Bracketology website, other fan bases. It seems the season to be critical of officials. Um, and, and that's just the age-old uh, sporting event thing. I know that. But is there uh, – I guess the layer is – how difficult is it to officiate with the athletes that are being played, uh, the, playing NCAA basketball right now? And then is there a difference in conferences? I know these guys f- officiate many different conferences. You always hear the complaint that Big Ten officiating is what hurts it, uh, the Big Ten in the tournament because of the, the physicality. W- what, what are we missing? What do we need to know as a, as a fan base of, about officiating uh, in those kind of games where it comes down to the wire and we tend to turn on them. More well, than I, I think, first of all, I think that's a canard because, I mean, we, we've we had, over my time at Big Ten Network, we've had a, in the, uh, in the final four, there has been more than a significant representation of Big Ten teams. So uh, I don't think that's what's hurt the team, the league at all. I, 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 my theory is more along the lines of the league has been so deep that they get somewhat worn out and somewhat oriented toward a specific approach as, as teams, because to survive this, we have to be the best version of ourselves. This We have to, you know, if we are a fastball pitcher, we got to locate that fastball. If we are a curveball pitcher, we got to, you know, hit the corners. That's that's what the Big Ten has become. I think it's also true the Big 12, it'll be interesting to see what their teams come out and do this season. Uh, I think that's a big part of it. Uh, it, it because I looked it up and it, leagues that have gotten that extreme number of teams have not fared well in the NCAA tournament. Generally, now they have produced a few champions. Carolina seventeen in a nine-team league, uh, and Connecticut eleven in an eleven-team league. But a perfect example in that eleven-team season for the Big East, the all-time record for number of bids. Uh, they had two teams out of eleven. Eleven, two teams got to the Sweet Sixteen, and both teams played other Big East teams. So somebody had to go to the Sweet Sixteen. So. It it does wear it does wear you down a bit to do that. So I, I don't think that's what's been the problem the last two years when the when the league has un, underperformed at the NCAA tournament. I, I if officiating. There are things I will offici- I will criticize relative to officials. I, I think first of all, I don't believe that the charge block is usually adjudicated properly. I don't believe that it generally is. I went to a seminar once and I appreciate being welcomed into that to learn more about officiating. And and I came away with great respect for what they do uh, and what the challenges are. But they, they, one of the things they did, one of the exercises, there's maybe minimum 200 officials in division one officials in the, in the, in the conference room. And they're showing plays on a screen, show the play, uh, it's a guy running into another guy near the basket. Blocker charge. N- raise your hand. 
all, you know, like every ref, charge, Mike, block. You know, I mean, that, that was, <laughs> that was, every, I was like almost every call. Uh, so I, I think that, that that's part of the problem. The, the replay reviews, too, too voluminous, too protracted. So those things are problematic. Uh, but I think in general, they do a good job. I, I think there are times when we see uh, the um, we see a ball deflected out of bounds and you think that couldn't have been off that guy. You know, that couldn't have been off the offense, had to be off the defense. And then you see the replay. Oh, nope, they got it right again. They're standing right there. They're trained to do this. They're often right. Now, a, a call like the, the trade call uh, against Boo Booey, there were two things that bothered me about it. One was the very thing that I had gotten into a day-long Twitter debate uh, after the Super Bowl, that the rules are the rules for 60 minutes, or in this case, 40 minutes. It's not let the players decide the game. The defensive back for Philadelphia decided the game the minute he grabbed Juju Smith-Schuster's jersey. One, if you can't defend Juju Smith-Schuster without grabbing his jersey, <laughs> you kind of deserve what you get. I mean, really <laughs> tough player, but not that electric these days. Uh, and then two, uh, he either knew or should have known that the worst possible outcome for Philadelphia in that circumstance was a first down, not a touchdown. Touchdown won great, but touchdown they can answer. First down, game's over unless the guy misses a field goal. They're, they are now powerless to stop the to stop begin. And you saw that on the next play because running back gets the ball, runs down. Philly's like, go ahead, score. And the guy's like, nope, we're stopping here. So the defensive back should have known that. In I think there might have been, and I can't say this, but there might have been an element of that in the in the close of that game. There might have been an element of that, uh, not wanting to decide the game, so to speak. And then the other part of it was that Trey didn't fall down. And I hate that he that if he had fallen down, that he probably would have gotten a call. Or there, there would have been much better chance of him getting a call. Instead, being a true basketball athlete competitor, he wasn't out there to draw a charge. He was out there to stop a basket. One of the many reasons I love that kid as a player. Mm-hmm. But because he didn't fall down, there was no call. I, well, I can't, I can't, one of the reasons that I suspect that there wasn't a call was that he didn't fall down. There, do, there, there didn't seem to be much, uh, much doubt that there was there was a collision or, uh, you know, there was force applied, whatever you want to say, um, that the two of them contacted, that one of them was naturally intending to go in the direction of the basket. So it was likely that contact caused the defender to move backward and lose lose his, his mark. It wasn't hard step, pull back, and then the player's out of the play because it was a fake. If it was that, hey, great play, boo-booey. But that's not what happened. So... I, that, that from that standpoint, I, I I had concerns about the the no call there. Uh, I I think, like I said, in general, I think they do a good job. There are certain circumstances where I'm a little puzzled. Last night, Maryland um, played 18 minutes of defense against Zach Eady with only one foul in the first half. Found that odd. Uh, I you know it's hard not to foul him. And and yet one foul in 18 minutes. Okay. I mean, those kinds of things come up and you raise your eyebrow, 
but you're not in the building and you're not seeing close hand and not nearly as close as the official does what's actually happening under there and to know whether or not there are files being committed. Uh, more often than not, uh, when you see a play happen and you think that there was something that, you know, a call, a, a foul or something, more often than not, when you think something happened at game speed when you're watching on television and then they replay it, you're like, oh, yeah, they got that one right. So <laughs> yeah. I, I, I do think they do a good job. The concerns about things like um, guys working too much and all that, that's the nature of this deal. As long as they are conference – well, they are not – as long as they are independent contractors contracted by conferences rather than the NCAA – uh, we'll have that issue because refs are trying to make money and they're going to do the best they can to stay fresh. Uh, but boy, another paycheck, given what they, you know, given that they have four months to make it, um, it's hard to say no to the next game when the pay's pretty good and every game stacks that money a little bit higher. Yep. Well, Mike, we'll get you out of here on this. I think it's only fair since last week we had a question from one of our members that asked, why are you so low on Indiana when it comes to bracketology? We'll ask you this question from George. Why is Mike so much higher on IU than other bracketologists? He had them as a three seed before the loss to Northwestern. Right, right. You know, I will. I, I said on Big Ten today that I got pretty aggressive with their seed because I thought it you know, I thought they were an arrow pointing up team. And I'm not saying they're an arrow pointing down team, although I did drop them in today's bracket by a couple of lines. Um, sometimes it's about what the others are doing as well. Uh, when, when, when they lost that game, the four line got really crowded for me uh, you, because I've had UConn in that neighborhood for a while. Uh, I've had Miami in that. Uh, Miami for me has been a rock solid four. Kansas State with what they've accomplished in a really difficult conference and Gonzaga, which ascended for me with some really good performances of late. I just didn't feel there was enough room on that line to drop them to that. And I dropped them to five. Uh, so I, I, I think I was really enthused about them analytically. I think that that I think the fact that they are now at this point, they are in the top 20 in the net at 18, they're up to five quad one wins. So the quad one thing had been a real problem for them. Uh, and, and it's, and it's now less of one, uh, the, the addition, obviously of the Purdue win, uh, some things have happened for them, like Michigan coming in at 72. So that road win, uh, is, is a quad one now. Uh, so that's helped them. And then you look at the predictive metrics and that's a really strong case for them. Uh, they are across the board inside the top 20 uh, and, and with uh, BPI and Sagarin both having them inside the top 15. So that's been a really strong case for them. And, and also as well, I mean, you have to look at road win against Michigan, impressive, not elite, but impressive. And, and that, uh, that um, trip, that, that ability to beat Purdue, that's going to stand as one of the great wins of the season. If you look at uh, Alabama winning at Houston, uh, Rutgers winning at 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 Purdue, uh, the teams that have beaten Purdue are gonna, you know, that one's that one's a real trophy win. And you know, there are a few that have beaten Alabama. There are a few have beaten Purdue. There are not as many that have beaten Houston. Those have been the three uh, most significant teams this year. Kansas has been very very good. 
but because they have limited size, they've been a little bit more vulnerable than some of the other teams at that level. Houston, who knows how vulnerable they'd be in a better league. They would be in, among the first place teams in every league, whether it would be, you know, if they were in the Pac-12, they'd be right there with UCLA. If they were in the Big Ten, they'd be right there with Purdue. Whether they'd be first or second would largely come down to schedule. They're good enough, but they haven't been challenged very much. Uh, they had three difficult non-conference games. They lost one of them. They've had none of their most difficult conference games. First one, uh, they only have one other team in the league that even has a chance at the show, and that's Memphis. And I, I think that their league screwed up a little bit. Scheduling, knowing that the, those were the two top teams in the league, they, sh- they should have had some distance in between their two games. One's on Sunday, and then the other, I think, is either the next last or next to last game of the season. Wow. I don't think that's smart for your best teams to get to get that squeezed like that. Uh, I think that they, it should have been stretched out more. And and I, and as, as having watched the Central Florida Memphis game last night, um, Kendrick Davis, the star Memphis guard, got hurt. So I don't even know if he'll play on Sunday. And I don't think they have a chance in Houston if he's not on the floor. I mean, I think that's a twenty pointer if he doesn't play. If you watched them play without him last night against Central Florida. Wow, that was it was really grim. Uh, they were able to squeeze it out at the end, but they just couldn't get the ball where they wanted to. So, Mike, the NCAA will reveal its top 16 tomorrow uh, at 1230. Uh, do you like that? Uh, can they do more? Should they do more? Uh, reveal for transparency, or is just the top four uh, uh, okay? I like what they do. I I. I, I you know, I mean, now when I when I when it first came out that they were going to do it, I wasn't wild about the idea because I thought it felt a lot like the football thing, and the football thing is so phony. Um, uh, it's it's it, it to me, it's it's such a show. You know, it, oh, we might move somebody. You know, I, 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 it's not a real tournament, so I ha- I'm I'm predisposed against it to begin with. Two years from now, it'll be real. Uh, but so I was I was opposed initially, and now since uh, you know lately, now that I have a gig doing those, um, now I feel like you know I don't want them to do more than they do because that little mystery helps keep you know right. my followers and C and Fox CBB on Fox followers engaged. Uh, so there's it's selfish. I'm I have to acknowledge my conflict <laughs> there. Um, but I, I think I think that the fact that they do that does give you kind of a okay. This is what we're looking at, and and I think that you're you're at least able to get a feel for who they value, what they value, and I, so I, I'm very curious to see what they come out with tomorrow. Who who are the who are the ones? Uh, who are the fours? What's in between? You know where they you know where they situate different teams. There's a little bit of mystery there because it it shows you you know a little bit about how they'll they'll maneuver teams along the one line, you know, did Purdue lose Louisville uh, when they lost last night at Maryland? For me, they did. So I won't be surprised if they did for the committee that, that, you know, that my first thought was uh, that it's hard to keep them there. I, I was very adamant about them still being the number one team really even like, I like, I don't really care about the AP poll, but I, I, I mocked the AP poll for not keeping them number one after the, uh, after the Northwestern loss, because they still had a better resume than everybody in the country, but it's a little bit, you know, it's it's not that now. It, it's it can be again, 
because I don't think Alabama necessarily is going undefeated the rest of the season. Purdue's in a really good position because they've got three good teams, four good teams left, and three of them are coming to Mackey. Uh, so they get to settle in at home a little bit and, you know, maybe get their confidence back. Man, I thought you said Purdue lost to Louisville, and my brain about melted. Given, uh, <laughs> oh, yes. Well, Virginia <laughs> almost did the other night, and my brain almost melted there, too. I mean, how they could come, you know, with only uh, – I, I probably should have docked Virginia a seed line after that. Goodness gracious, how do you only beat that team by three points? Uh, well, Mike, thank you. We always appreciate your time uh, here on Friday. Enjoy the weekend watching basketball, and we'll look forward to talking with you next week. It was a pleasure, guys, as always. Thanks for having we'll me. We'll see you, Mike. Great. Thank you, Mike. The great Mike DeCourcy, everybody, here on Fridays to give us his insights on bracketology and the Big Ten. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we are excited to welcome in one of our favorite hoops analysts. He keeps a close eye on the bubble for ESPN. He's an adjunct lecturer on basketball analytics at Columbia University. He wrote the book, Miracles on the Hardwood. Hardwood. He preaches the gospel of shot volume to anyone who will listen, and I definitely am one who listens. And he keeps a close eye on his alma mater, Illinois, who Indiana happens to be playing this weekend. It is John Gassaway, ladies and gentlemen. Very pleased to have him here on the show. Thank you, John. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Hello, Hoosier Nation. Good to be here. Absolutely. So, look, the first question, obviously, with the game coming Saturday, have you queued up your Eric Gordon video to tweet out in advance <laughs> yeah, of the game? <laughs> if you could, yeah, if you could see the the shirt uh, from 2008 that I'm wearing under this sweater, I, I still, yeah. Uh, no, I, you know, that, that is a subset of the uh, orange and blue fan base. Uh, I uh, I, I never uh, partook of, of that particular uh, Kool-Aid, but more power to those who do. Good for them. <laughs> yes. Um, on a serious note, let's talk about this game. Uh, obviously, yes. it's you know it's a big game for both teams. As you know, India and Illinois, you know, not really a chance to win the Big Ten, but certainly competing for the you know the double buy position in the Big Ten tournament. And, you know, shoot, I mean, what happened up there in Champaign was really one of the more surprising results in the moment when it happened, because Indiana was still kind of bouncing back, shall we say, from the uh, from the three game losing streak. What do you expect to see Saturday in the rematch? Um, I think from a scouting perspective, the important thing for Indiana fans to understand is that the game that Trace Jackson Davis had against Illinois in Champaign that's not the best game that somebody has had against Illinois. (laughs) Uh, That person's name is Jalen Pickett. Uh, So Illinois is, is used to uh, seeing games like this. And uh, I expect the Hoosiers rightly to, uh, to go that well uh, right from the start. Again, I'll be watching keenly to see if uh, Brad Underwood wants to try something different on uh, trace um, this time. But that was just masterful. That was that was an amazing performance. And my question from the Indiana side is, you know, that uh, as you you nailed it, uh, that came at a point in the season where Indiana you know, had a a point to prove, and they were they were breaking through a wall. Now that they've done that, and now that you know uh, they're they're much further down the road, and the projected seed looks great. You know, can they summon that will? You know, again, uh, the you know, obviously the the home environment is going to work in their favor, and it's, it's going to be a very steep hill uh, for Illinois. I'll just be interested to see if they can be as keyed in as they were in Champaign, because that was just brilliant. 
what's your what's your sense about this Illinois team right now? I mean, they have you know a couple of the best wins in the country, and yet they also have games where they just look disjointed and don't play very well together. But we know the talent is there. Like, what what do you expect from this team Saturday and for the rest of the year? Yeah, Illinois in 2023 just goes to prove that the bottom line uh, performance is means nothing in terms of real time watching because. If you could whisk the curtain back, you know, um, on November 1st and say, look, they beat UCLA, they beat Texas, and they're about 10 spots, you know, better than you would have expected nationally. You know, Illinois fans would be like, this is great, you know, but living through that day to day and uh, to see this glass is half full. Another thing Illinois does well that nobody uh takes into account about their own team or about other teams is they've done a good job taking care of business against uh, teams that they're supposed to beat. But within that subset of teams that are going to make the NCAA tournament or might, uh, there's a school of thought that says Illinois is exactly upside down. <laughs> and they can take care of UCLA and Texas, no problem. But Missouri, Penn State, you know, you're, you're going to get blown out. So that's uh, that's uh, challenging to watch and even more challenging to predict in advance because uh, that's that's kind of been their mo. Um, we'll we'll see how that uh, pans out against the Hoosiers. John Brian Tonsoni, nice to meet you virtually. Nice to meet you. Uh, yeah. we, we've exchanged some some information over the years with bracketology and appreciate mm-hmm. your work. Um, I've also been accused of being a big Illinois fan inside the Hoosier uh, from some of our – but I, I appreciate um, Coach Underwood. I've been over to cover a couple games for our bracketology uh, group. He uh, has shown the ability to be stubborn. He's also shown the ability yeah. to be flexible uh, right. in changing that from the pressing defense to uh, when he had Kofi. And now he, there was mention of switching one to five. Now he went to switching one to four, and he attempts to do those things. So it goes back to how they're going to guard Indiana. Right. He is a staunch believer in giving up contested twos and not letting other people beat you, and that's ultimately mm-hmm. Pickett beat him and and TJD beat him. Your your thoughts on on that kind of philosophy for Illinois that he's going to kind of you know let people get their points, but he wants to stop everyone else. Uh, is, is that something we're going to see, or do you think he's going to have to try to take away Trace Jackson Davis in some alternate uh, forms of defense? You're correct. He he is uh, a devotee of that school of thought, and uh, you know that's what the, the quote unquote book says. You know that that does work for you over the long haul, and you know the class. But it can uh, it can bite you, obviously, when those uh, contested two pointers going in. The classic example that I think of ever since it happened is that's exactly how Gonzaga plays and. They were playing that way in the 2021 Final Four, and they were undefeated, and they were playing UCLA, and UCLA just had an out-of-body experience, and these were not just contested twos. They were long. They were right inside the arc, and you could see in real time the Zags thinking, okay, yeah, you're doing just what we want, and they all went in, and you you know, the rest, it went to overtime and uh, needed an incredible Jalen Suggs uh, buzzer beater to win, so... In theory, it's good. It's kind of like Illinois itself. In theory, it's good. In real time, it can uh, it can come back and, and bite you. But uh, yeah, you uh, 
it, it's interesting what you say about Underwood because, you know, to have nothing to do with analytics or nothing to do with basketball, I just have this theory that coaches just in their appearance, you know, uh, that determines how people talk about them and even how journalists write about them and analyze them. And Underwood just looks like a, a fiery, stubborn, combative guy. Uh, but you're right. He has switched his defense 180 degrees once, you know, when he did not have Kofi Coburn and then he did, <laughs> he just changed it completely. So he has been flexible, but he doesn't look flexible when he's, you know, literally turning red in the face and yelling at a player on the sidelines. So uh, I think it colors how we perceive these things. He, he made a comment. Um, he made a comment once about uh, Meyer uh, earlier this year when I was over there in that way. He goes, I, I was stubborn, uh, but, I love being stubborn, but even I know that when a guy's hot, I'm going to have to, to right. go. I thought it was quite the acknowledgement for us coaches. Sometimes we get stuck in our ways. That's one of the reasons I really appreciate uh, coach that he's, he's able to look at stuff, analytics, other things and, and make those changes. Yeah. And there's the, I mean, this was not to plug a book that was already mentioned here, but I, I had never heard this story until I was right. But there's a, a great story about Mark few, uh, recruiting Adam Morrison out of high school. And he's like, you know, calling then assistant coach Leon Rice, now the head coach at Boise State. He's calling him at halftime of this high school game saying, man, I don't know about this guy. He's not very athletic, you know. He, he even kind of runs kind of funny. And, and Leon Rice is like, hey, how many points has he got? You know, it's halftime. Like he checks his notes. He's like uh, 31. <laughs> like, well, maybe you better recruit him after all. You know, and the rest is history. So, yeah, coaches do need to stay flexible. For Indiana fans looking at this matchup, who are kind of the one or two biggest, you know, X factors or keys for Illinois? You know, Matthew Meyer did not have a good game up there right. the last time. Coleman Hawkins is a guy that we've seen flash NBA potential and other games yep. seem to really struggle. Who, who, I mean, and I'm sure, you know, those are two of the guys, but who, who, who do you think are the keys for Illinois to win a road game like this? No, those, those are two great ones to start with. Uh, Meyer uh, to this point in the season has been Illinois only hope uh, for threes, obviously uh, team wide in big 10 play. Illinois is, is really struggling in that department. Uh, Meyer on paper, his percentage looks fine. Uh, the volume is not, you know, what you'd what you'd like uh, from a from your only hope to to make threes. And uh, Hawkins, when you say, you know, flashing the potential uh, for a guy shooting twenty nine percent on his threes, I, I swear he's shooting forty five percent when John Gassaway is watching, and he he just it looks good when he's doing picks and pops, you know, and he's he's shooting. You're sure it's going to go in. So it's uh, th those are two. Uh, I hesitate to use the word X factors, but, you know, uh, variable performers. And when Meyer uh, is on, as is no less authority than Coach Underwood said, you know, uh, that works really well. I mean, I remember uh, getting that sense when he played at, at Baylor and he was surrounded with a world of talent. And it was like, who's this guy, man? This guy can just get red hot. So, um, no, those are uh, those are two things that could, um, you know, uh, look very different uh, at any time, good or bad. You, know, you mentioned something there about three-point volume that I think is interesting because it's a topic that Indiana fans have discussed all season long. And look, the offense last year was 90th in Ken Palm. It's 23rd this year. It's grown by leaps and bounds. Trace has been great. Jalen Huchifino has been great. And yet, you know, Indiana's in the top 20 in the country in three-point percentage, but down around 350th in three-point attempts. 
And so it's been strange being an Indiana fan, wanting to praise the growth in the offense because it's been good and we've had a good season. And yet it feels like there's a lot of untapped potential because we don't take threes, even though we have guys who have demonstrated this year they can make them. Do you have kind of a more objective viewpoint on this and how we should view this as fans as we go through this season? Um, it's objective. I'm just not sure it's uh, adding uh, anything to what you already covered. The only thing that I would note is just relative to the rest, which is how I look at these uh, in, in every conference I track, relative to the conference, um, Indiana is shooting an extremely low number of threes. And uh, if you think of poor Illinois fans, who sh- you know, their team shoots a normal number of threes, but they don't go in. Um, you know, can Indiana, can you give us some of those threes that you don't want to take? You know, made threes, please. You know, we we will take them, believe me. Uh, so again, uh, the the offense is is fine. It, it's uh, it, it's uh, much improved from last year. So you don't want to uh, be in the position of saying, boy, the you know food is great here in such small portions, but it's just interesting um, when you look at it because it's a really low volume. And uh, who is to say that, you know, with a few more threes, uh, they might not, you know, they, they might fall (laughs) and you might like what you see and uh, go ahead and take the next bite. But to this point, you're exactly right. It's been a a very low frequency. What's your general opinion on Mike Woodson so far as a coach from what you've seen? Uh, you know, look at, uh, look, look at the results. Uh, and I, uh, this is, uh, in keeping with our completely non-analytic theme, you know, I've got a, a spot, uh, in my heart for when the coaches so obviously love where they are. And I don't need to tie that to, are you an alum? You know, obviously Woodson's a, a legend at IU and that's, that's where that comes from. But, you know, uh, guys like Jerome Tang, you know, at, at Kansas State, you know, he, he, he's he's imparting that sense, too. And he's not an alum. So as long as you've got that and, you know, Woodson's got that to the nth degree and um, and the players feed off of that. And I'm a big body language guy. Uh, they they, uh, they listen to him. They like playing for him. Um, and, you know, they're winning now. I don't know, whenever that was, a month ago, six weeks ago, you know, uh, when there was a rocky start to the Big Ten. Um, I mean, it's easy to say all these compliments I'm saying now because Indiana is doing so well. But I saw those things then, and I had the sense that, you know, this is, you know, just stay the course. This is going to uh, this is going to pan out. So I've, I've, been, uh, I've been very impressed. Shoot, we should have had you on the show after the Penn State game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that might have been helpful. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, I want to ask you about analytics. Um, you know, as I mentioned in the opening, I mean, you teach a course on basketball analytics, and it's it's something that we've really tried to incorporate more in our discussion over the last four or five years, you know, and you know, there's some pretty easy stuff that I think people can grasp onto, you know, why points per game is much less you know, powerful and telling than points per possession, some of those things. But I'm curious, you know, from your perspective, teaching people this stuff, what are some of the most common mistakes that you see people make when they're kind of first getting in to basketball analytics, whether it's a misconception, a misunderstanding, what are some of those that you see? Well, I've got a, uh, an entire, um, 
roster of, of things that drive me crazy and, and make me mutter uh, when I'm watching a game or when I'm watching commentary about a game on social media. But um, uh, if I may, let me, let me start at a little more global level and say uh, for, for us fans of the college game, and I, I'm a fan of the pro game too very much. I, I respect those who like one or the other, but I, I don't get into this NBA versus college sniping. I don't understand that. I, I love them both. Um, but if you are a fan of the college game, I would encourage you to, to think of the coach that you love or that you want fired immediately. Think of that coach much more like an NBA general manager and much less like, you know, an X's and O's uh, master or an X's and O's uh, incompetent person if you want them fired. Because um, the more that uh, you work on this kind of stuff, the more you get the sense that what really matters is, or what matters more than uh, we all uh, account for when we're watching in real time is uh, who do you have? Who did you bring to the program in your role as general manager? And how are those people uh, being treated and how do they feel about you? Um, that's huge. And uh, more than ever now that we're talking about NIL and, uh, you know, greater transfer mobility. And, you know, I'm seeing some new coaches criticized, I mean, literally new in their first year. Well, you didn't go into the portal. <laughs> you know, what do you think was going to, you know, you're going to win with incoming high school player? You know, who does that anymore? So, you know, these kinds of uh, level uh, considerations do matter. And now I'm, I'm happy to, you know, turn to the things that uh, um, uh, uh, sow confusion <laughs> at the more tactical level. But that, that's one thing that, that strikes me right off is uh, the, the college coach is, is really more of a general manager. And John, how how should coaches use uh, statistics analytics uh, in in their coaching? Uh, that's always been something that we as high school coaches and, and and talking about college coaches, it's an interesting thing because there's still a feel to the game. Uh, and I think coaches who don't use analytics are behind the times, but they're they're also there has to be a, a little bit of a, a massaging of that too. Uh, on a coach, but how do you see that? Uh, how can coaches benefit from these analytics? Uh, coaches definitely want to, and, and one uh, uh, perspective that I've been fortunate enough to gain is to have been doing this, you know, now for about the, it was about a decade ago uh, when I started getting contacted by you know, assistant coaches. And I emphasize that because it was always assistant coaches <laughs> and it was never the head coach. <laughs> and these guys uh, more often than not would contact me without telling their head coach and would say somewhat sheepishly, somewhat furtively, uh, but candidly, you know, my head coach doesn't believe in this stuff, but you know, blah, blah, blah. Here's my question. Um, I never get that anymore <laughs> because, you know, fear is a tremendous motivator. And in one instance that just makes me so happy, I mean, it was the assistant coach telling me, you know, his particular head coach at that time, you know, says, you know, I, I just want to know if my guys are playing hard. Um, and now this coach is Mr. Analytics and he cites this and he cites that. And that just, this pleases me uh, greatly. So, um, Coaches 
use it out of self-interest and out of, uh, you know, apprehension that the other coach is using it more. And in the most basic sense, to answer your question, um, they should be used just to answer, you know, what is working? What are we doing that's working? Okay. Oh, well, this looks problematic. Okay. That's a, that's a bad result. What's behind that? You dig a little deeper. Oh, here's the problem. Um, what can we do to fix that? What can we do? You know, what can we try to do to fix that? Um, I'm, I continue to be surprised at how quickly, uh, you know, now that, uh, analytics is, is everywhere in a good way. And as a consumer of this stuff, I, I love it. And there's more information and more enlightenment out there than ever. I'm still surprised at how quickly we go into really, really, really detailed stuff without stepping back and going, well, wait a minute, you know, this team's defense is bad, you know, uh, what, what can we do to, to help with that? Um, so keeping things basic and, and seeking good information, I think is the key. Hmm. Have there been any kind of recent or new developments in the analytics world that have particularly intrigued you? Which is an interesting question based on what you just said about kind of keeping it simple. But you know, just, I'm just curious if there's been anything kind of new that has come out or, or new numbers or new ways of looking at things that you've been intrigued by. Yes, there's, uh, there's all kinds of good stuff um, happening. I, I like the work that is done um, in, in new directions. You know, I, I feel like we've got kind of a good box around uh, the game itself, particularly in the NBA, particularly with, uh, you, know, um, you know, tracking uh, the, you know, well, just like we do in the NFL, tracking exactly uh, which players are where at every moment and how closely being, you're being guarded and which, uh, combinations of players work the best and just to segue briefly into the previous question uh you can do that in the nba you can look at multiple player combinations over a long season where the games are longer too and you can get something out of it um one thing that i think can be misunderstood at the college level is when we try and do that for one game and we say well you know uh, Indiana was outscored by five points when, you know, Trace sat down for, for 40 seconds. Well, yeah, well, he's, he's a really good, good, <laughs> important player, but, but if, you know, if we're talking about an entire NBA season, that's probably a, a better, uh, way to look at that. So, um, those are all good things, but I, I love what's being done in areas like, um, more broadly areas like uh, rest and recuperation and health and fatigue. Um, this ties in directly with the college game. I've, I've always been, and I've, I've done some uh, poking around at this myself a couple of years ago. This was pre pandemic. So I guess it had to have been three years ago, but the year that uh, the big 10 said, we're going to end the regular season early and, you know, play the season tournament a week earlier and there was an uproar and I started uh, digging and it turns out that's probably a good idea. <laughs> you know, people were worried about the layoff and you'll get rusty and you'll get to the NCAA tournament and you won't know what to do. And actually resting and recuperating before the NCAA tournament is probably a good thing. So those kinds of things, uh, again, in the college setting, the age of the players I'm tremendously uh, interested in now and I'm, I'm doing uh, more work in that direction. Uh, kind of, kind of opening up uh, the the envelope uh, more broadly uh, beyond uh, what we've been doing so far uh, is is very uh, very intriguing to me. 
you write the bubble watch for ESPN and that is a must read every time that it comes oh, out. I'm you. curious as you kind of look at the big 10 bubble, I think when I read your most recent one, you had Purdue as the one lock in the conference and then, you know, Indiana and a few other schools there should be in. And then some others that have work to do. What is your, what is your view of the big 10 right now when it comes to the bubble in the NCAA tournament? Uh, Indiana, I'm not giving away any scoops here when I say Indiana is obviously an, an imminent lock, uh, you know, as the, as the runway grows shorter and shorter until selection Sunday, uh, the, here's how the sausage gets made at, at bubble watch or any bubble watch, you know, teams have to get locked because, you know, they need to get to 68 teams. They being the committee, uh, need to get to 68 somehow. So Indiana is an imminent lock. Um, if Northwestern keeps beating every team that plays it, you know, uh, they, they will be there soon as well. Uh, I'm not sure we ever will get a question to uh, second best big 10 team. Uh, Purdue is falling back toward the pack, but they only started doing that uh, 60% of the way through the, the big 10 season. So it's, it's not going to be enough for about nine other teams that are hopeful of uh, catching them. I, I don't think it's going to happen, but um the Big Ten is going to get a ton of teams. Uh, I, I, you know, for the sake of discussion, let's say uh, current bracket protections are about right, and Indiana maybe lands on the four line, but below that, uh, like on the five and especially six and seven lines, you won't be able to swing a cat without hitting, you know, like three NBA teams in, in that section of the bracket. I mean, that's just where the Big Ten lives. Outside of the Big Ten, who are some of the teams that you're most intrigued by as we come down the final weeks of the season? Well, it's a it's a good year for uh, page views when Kentucky and North Carolina are right on the bubble. I'll put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't usually have that privilege in my chair at Bubble Watch to be writing about those two programs. Uh, so that's uh, fun. At the opposite end of the um, of that traditional. Uh, perspective uh, the mountain west is a mess uh, they have a, a bunch of teams they're having a great year and so it's an interesting uh, bubble picture but it could go either way for several of their teams um sec kind of the same way uh, they've got a lot of uh, bubble action going uh, and uh, one thing that interests me about the big 12 which of course is uh, having a great year is that um, it's actually pretty done and dusted, um, it looks like, especially if TCU would just get healthy already and be, again, the team that can win by 23 at Kansas. But um, they're going to have a lot of teams on the three, four lines, and um, it, it's a really powerful league. So I read all of your articles on ESPN. I follow you on Twitter at John Gassaway. Are there any other places that we should be connecting with you to make sure that we get all of your work? Because you post your blog posts on Twitter, so I always get them on there. Right. And that uh, that site that you refer to is simply johngassaway.com. And um, every once in a while, I just uh, dash off a thought there. And like one out of about every three times uh, – an editor at ESPN sees that and says, you know, hey, you, you should, uh, you know, you should have pitched that to us. 
So then I start pitching everything and they're like, yeah, we're good. <laughs> you know? and, and then I stop <laughs> and then I post something. And then by then it's a new editor. He or she says, Hey, you should have been. So uh, it's the uh, circle of life, but yeah, johncastaway.com. I love the tweet that you sent out earlier today. You said bald assertions of coaching authority, like auto benches or bands on offensive boards may represent an adaptive psychological response in a profession where either young adults make jumpers or you're fired. <laughs> well, I thought was a, was a great way to look at it. It gets back to my point about how to think about, you know, one's coach is, you know, he's just, in a sense, he's just watching like the rest of us, you know? Is that jumper going to go in? You know, what, what do you expect the coach to do at this point? You know, the ball's in the air. So uh, it's a tough way to live, man. It is. Well, John, I really appreciate your insight. Thank you so much for coming on here. And Thanks. hopefully we get a good competitive game on Saturday. And obviously we hope that the Hoosiers win. But, uh, you know, we want to see all the Big Ten teams do well in the in the tournament and have a good showing for the conference. Yeah, let us have a good Big Ten tournament, uh, a big tournament for the Big Ten in March for Please. once. That <laughs> I'm so, I'm so tired root, of talking about that. <laughs> I will root for every Big Ten team. Yes. That's how deeply I feel about this. Please, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. For awesome. Thank you so much, John. Have a great weekend. Thanks. You too. All righty, everybody. The great John Gassaway joining us here on Banner Friday. Always appreciate uh, his insight. He just has a really interesting way of looking at things and phrasing yep. things. That's why I love that tweet that he sent earlier today. Uh, it was great. It is a it is a reminder, especially at the college level. And I mean, I'm sure you feel it too at the high school level, but I remember going through it with my dad of just how powerless you feel sometimes in your entire livelihood is based on the whims of 18 to 22 year olds, which when I was a kid, I didn't quite understand. But then having gone to college myself and now being a little bit older really seems ridiculous. Yeah. But you know, that's, I, 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 that, that's the big takeaway for me today is, is the general manager uh, thing. Yeah. And, and there's much more to it than, than just game night uh, in college college athletics as a whole and and what you're talking about there is are you maximizing the guys you're bringing in one you got to bring in the right guys and then are you maximizing those guys and sometimes that shows up uh when you travel to northwestern and sometimes it doesn't show up to the second half um but it is an interesting idea to look at uh your coaches as opposed to that micro event that happened on wednesday night or or this timeout or this technical uh, th- those types of things in evaluating your coaches that, that that was excellent all right so that is a good segue coach into what i want to talk with you about first and we're going to get to the mailbag um ryan and i kicked this around a little bit at the end of the northwestern show and i want to get your thoughts and i posted it in the community and i think we've gotten a wide range of really good answers to it um and i don't honestly i don't know how i feel about it i just think it's one of the biggest lingering questions for this program right now or this team which is how would you like to see Mike Woodson handle the Tamar Bates conundrum? And the conundrum is we've seen the flashes. You know, he pops for 17, 18, whatever it was against Michigan State, and then he'll go weeks without scoring a point and without really seeming in rhythm and just really seems to be struggling right now. So, you know, from that kind of GM perspective, look, this was a borderline four or five star recruit. You would take him all the time. Uh, you know, hardworking guy, has length, like has a lot of the prerequisites that you want and you think this guy can be successful and we've seen the flashes and yet he's struggling mightily. And so my question is, 
you know, what's the best option here, right? And the four options that I put in the community are, one, you know, we've won eight out of 10 games. Let's keep doing what we're doing. Trust that his talent and work ethic is going to win out in the end and he'll start producing. Two, start making a more concerted effort to help get him looks and hopefully more into the flow of the game when he comes in because maybe he's just a guy who needs that. Number three, continue to play his regular minutes at home where he seems more comfortable and is more productive and reduce his minutes on the road. And then four, alter the rotation and start giving his minutes to other players. Because at the end of the day, you can't go on the road for 17 minutes and have a guy not producing. You know, at that point, even though Caleb Banks hasn't showed the shooting, shown the shooting, maybe he can at least get you some points through cuts and rebounds, you know, and so maybe it's worthwhile there. I'm kind of curious where you fall on this, you know, and obviously we have limited information. We're not in practice, all those things. But when you see a guy like Tamar who's struggling and can be the answer to what you need, which is another reliable score, what do you think is the best solution here? Well, I'm, I'm going to take it two different ways because I'm going to, I'm going to, act like coach Woodson, like coach Woodson has a philosophy. It's going to be heavy point guard and heavy post. And he believes in that. And you want a coach that believes in a system. So the other guys around them are only going to get their opportunities on double teams and kickouts. And yes, at times Miller cop has made shots and he has also missed shots. And Tamar has made some shots and missed some shots. And I think you're right in him struggling. So I think if I'm Coach Woodson, I'm going to continue to do the same thing. And I'm going to work on it and practice and try to talk to the young man. If you have good role definition, then Tamar understands that he's not going to be a primary. There's not going to be a lot of stuff run for him primarily. So Coach Woodson has to make sure he's okay with that. Uh, and you do that with talking and you do that with uh, you know having him be ready to do uh, some certain things. And that's what I think Coach Woodson needs to do. Now, from my vantage point, I think that he is such a talent. Okay. Um, sorry if you're hearing my uh, cat in the background. <laughs> I think he's hungry, and, and Mrs. Tonsoni's not here yet to, to take care of it. But um, I would – we've talked about this. I would run stuff for Miller and for Tamar to get them going early because then you could go back to your post-heavy offense and your screen and roll game and when they come off of them, now your guys are in a rhythm. I, I think both Miller Cop and Tamar are struggling a little bit mentally with, uh, you know, do I shoot? Do I shoot under this contested shot? Uh, trying to get th their game going. Uh, and so from Brian Tonsoni on the outside, yeah, I would run stuff. I would take that answer where you would need to develop stuff to get him mentally going if he can. And if not, then maybe alter the minutes. But I, I think he's a better option right now. That I'm a big Caleb and CJ Gunn. Uh, but at this point, with five games left, he's been the guy who's been out there. I don't think you mess too much with yanking him because he's not making shots in an offense that isn't designed to get you shots. I think that's that's putting false blame on a young man because of your philosophy isn't working with with the third or fourth, fifth options, right? Um, so I, I don't believe that's in the best interest of Indiana is to take his minutes away. I think yeah. the best interest is to keep talking and working with him from a coach Woodson. If I were advising coach Woodson and being that assistant that contacted John Gassaway because my coach doesn't believe in something, <laughs> I'd be finding some analytics that say, you know what, if guys hit their first shots, what happens to their, to their performance uh, going forward? So I guess I answered it two ways, but I think it's in fairness to coach Woodson as that general manager, he's got to do what he believes in and he's going to get hood Shafino shots and he's going to get trace Jackson Davis shots. And the other guys just got to be ready when their moment comes. And right now, Tamar's struggling in that. 
So a lot of coaching, a lot of, you know, put your arm around them, a lot of film study, be ready when that opportunity is, presents itself next time and show faith in him. Uh, I, I think, I think you have to, uh, because there is that opportunity for him to pop right now. I think CJ and Caleb aren't that type of guy that Tamar is from outside. I mean, Caleb's a hustle guy. If you need hustle, you're going to use Tamar uh, or not Tamar, but Caleb to get some, you know, excitement plays and turn things around. CJ hasn't shown that consistency to hit shots in his opportunity yet. I think he'll get there. Uh, but I, I think Tamar has a better chance of popping than CJ right now uh, in, in that system, Yeah, in our I, system. And I think especially with a young player, so often it comes back to identity. And this is where I think Tamar is a little bit different than Miller Kopp and Trey Galloway in that, you know, Miller Kopp, and I don't think he really did this as much last year until the end. I think Miller Kopp has found an identity outside of shooting. You know, he's yes. found an identity as a defensive player and as a hustle guy. And so, you know, he does stuff. And, and I think part of that is just being a fifth-year senior, being a little bit more mature um, and not worrying as much about, you know, your, your scoring and just worrying more about winning. And that's a, a more mature mentality, um, which you'd love for a guy in the middle of his sophomore year to have, but isn't always going to happen. You know, Trey Galloway's identity has never been shooting. <laughs> you know, Trey Galloway right. is play defense, his drive, is all that stuff. His shooting has just become a thing this year. And he's probably taking about the right amount of shots. Like, I don't, Trey Galloway is not a contested shot guy. You know, you want him shooting wide open ones, and he's good at that. And that's where I think the difference comes in, and why I think tomorrow is such an interesting case here is because he can hit a wider variety of shots than Trey. And right now, his identity is tied up in scoring. You know, and, and this isn't, you know, yeah. this isn't anything I've talked with him about. You know, this is me just surmising from what I know of him and just watching him on the court where he gets in and you can tell he's kind of forcing it and wanting to get into the action. That's why I think the answer with this particular player is if you're going to play him, try and get him into the flow offensively. Yeah. That's his identity. And then the rest of his game kind of comes around, you know, and he just he seems like of all the guys in the rotation right now, the guy that is struggling the most to understand, to, to find an identity outside of just scoring, which he's really struggling to do. And then he struggles to impact the game in other ways. But, it, you know, it's a tough nut to crack, but I think if Indiana can crack it, yeah. it can really provide a boost over the back half, you know, the, the last few games of the season. Yeah. And that's one where I hope Coach Woodson's, and I think this has been his strength, is talking to people behind the scenes because it does, if I'm a player and I, and I hear, oh, they're not making shots, they're not making shots, that's why we were down 20, yeah, it wasn't my technicals. You weren't making shots. Uh, you got to play harder. Well, I'm reading that as, okay, I got to play harder and get shots. And, and I mm -hmm. think you're seeing that with Tamar right now, that he's hunting shots. He's he's driving and taking quick shots in, in the break instead of letting the offense work. And, and you also get that coaches, you know, we're, we're not the brightest, uh, and I'm not criticizing what I'm taking myself is sometimes you get in a rut as a coach too. Like why wouldn't you want Trace Jackson Davis to touch it every time? Why you know why wouldn't then you want Hood Shafino touching it the second of most time and why would you want the third and fourth and fifth guys touching it all the time I mean you get in a rut but you're gonna need the third fourth and fifth guy this is what I learned from uh, Mike Lewis the head coach at Western who is my former assistant when I went back to work for him this is an excellent uh, point about coaching he said early in the season you're not talking about shot selection with any of these guys we need everyone to shoot and be free to shoot. And they're going to miss them, and we're going to be mad, and we're going to watch film, and we're going to lose games because guys are missing wide-open shots. But if we find a couple kids that can pop, 
And by the end of the season in game 18, 19, or 20, they're still confident in pulling that shot when teams are double teaming our 6-8 post guy and when everyone else, they're going to hit a big shot and win a sectional game for us. Hmm. And it's a process. It's the journey. And, and I was always, you know, I always say feed the hogs, feed the hogs. You know, you got to get got, – Got to get the ball to your main scorers almost every possession. So I've been there, and a lot of coaches are like that. And it's not incorrect. Like, again, you want Trace Jackson Davis being the focal point of your offense. But I think the next step that I would suggest for Coach Woodson is you can still get him your 20, 25 shots, but incorporate those other guys some way and some way early. And when they're hot, then go back to them, Um, you know, and I know I catch grief for liking a lot of coaches, but some of the coaches around the Big Ten, when, when a guy's hot, they're going to run two or three plays for him. Uh, we've seen it in multiple uh, uh, places. And, and I, I'm not sure that Coach Woodson, I'm not saying he doesn't do that, but you're going to need tomorrow. You're going to need some outside shooting from Miller. You're going to need some in, in the Big Ten tournament. And as you make a run, if you want to go to the second weekend, you're going to need alternate scoring, uh, and you need those guys mentally ready. So I, I agree with you got to design. I think you got to, but I'm not sure that's um, the way Coach Woodson sees things, you know? Yeah, and look, you know, that's a nitpick. Um, and, and obviously, right. you know, we've been critical of Coach Woodson at times, but overall, I think he's done a, a really good job this season. Oh, absolutely. You know, na- navigating this team through injuries, navigating this team through a rut. The offense has gotten better. Uh, you know, the defense isn't as good analytically. Um, and part of that is just because you don't have X, you know, who is the spearhead, but overall Indiana's played good defense. And that leads me into this question uh, from our buddy, Chris at IU artifacts. What has been the greatest adjustment adjustment you have seen to Mike Woodson's in-game coaching from last season to this season that has helped this team succeed? Well, I, I think he needs to do more of it to be honest, but I think he's running more stuff. I mean, we just got done saying he's got to run stuff for tomorrow and, and doing those things. I think just uh, the ability to to steal that play from the women uh, and running it a, a couple times. I think there have been more adjustments this year with offensive sets, um, not just coming out of timeouts. Uh, I, th- I think that's been a benefit, and I think that's where the offense has picked up uh, at, at times. I think that's good. I also think that he's done some things defensively. I think he's he's altered some ball screen coverages. At, he loves that nail slot rim stuff, but he's when Indiana turned it around, he stayed tighter and put more pressure uh, than than he was against uh, Penn State and some of those others. So I, I think those might be outside of game. Uh, I don't know if I'm answering Chris's question there, but um, you know. So I think that there have been some more adjustments in game than we saw last year. I still think there are two or three minutes delayed for my my liking, and again with the caveat that we're not in the game planning and understanding things. Um, but, but I get this. We wouldn't won these games if he had stayed with what was going on in Arizona, Kansas, and, and all of those. I think he's, he's demonstrated an ability to learn and then put into the game plan. And during the games, I think he's been more involved with, with play calling and things of that nature, which I think is a benefit. And look, you know, we get so caught up, especially this time of the season focusing on, you know, especially when you get into like coach of the year discussions, right? It's like, well, coaches get all this credit if they weren't expected to do very well and then their team does well or, you know, they kind of fight through adversity, that kind of stuff. Um, And to John Gassaway's point, we do often forget that, you know, a college coach does kind of have that general manager role where a lot of the stuff that's going to impact the season doesn't even happen during the season. Now, some of it does. Those adjustments that you just talked about are key. 
But, I mean, the biggest thing that's helped Mike Woodson win basketball games this year is Trace Jackson Davis fully realizing his potential as a player. And that's because he's allowed Mike Woodson to coach him for two years. And Mike Woodson has helped get the most out of him and has helped Trace not worry about his quote unquote identity as a non shooter and say, you don't need to shoot. To, you know, you can, you know, the, the, it's open for you. But he's been very uh, clear that Trace doesn't need to shoot even to get to the next level. And I think you're seeing a guy in Trace Jackson Davis who is fully comfortable in his skin as a player and leader this season. And same thing with Jalen Hutchifino. You know, you bring in a five-star point guard that helps give you insurance if your other point guard gets hurt, and you help him develop and improve throughout the season. Um, and I think most guys have fallen into roles that they are real comfortable in, Tamar notwithstanding. So I think a lot of that stuff, to me, that's where I think Mike Woodson has really done a lot of good work and helped these guys develop. I mean, when was the last time we saw development in shooters? <laughs> Like we've seen this year, you know, he's given guys confidence. And so a lot of that stuff, those aren't in-game adjustments, but it is the kind of stuff that helps you win basketball games over a long season and helps you emerge from a rut and be successful. Um, and I think he's really done a cover good job injuries, with that stuff. Yeah. Being able so, to win despite we haven't been healthy since, uh, what North Carolina, yeah. um, you know, y- y- we haven't had the full complement of players that were expected and we're going to be a five seed. You know, uh, we win two out of three or two out of two or three, we're a five seed more, more than likely. Um, you know, the only way we're lower than that is if we lose four or five in a row and, and, and drop, but, um, yeah, credit needs, credit needs to go to, to the motivation behind the X's and O's. You know, we focus a lot on the X's and O's as a post game, you know, show and what worked in this game and what didn't and scheme. And that's a lot of basketball, uh, but there's also that uh, when you build a program, do you do you have the culture? And I think he has the culture in a in a very good. We were worried in the in the three game, you know, a lot of stuff, you know, people throwing out thoughts that the culture had maybe taken a dip during that three game. Uh, but like John said, and and I think we've witnessed now that that really wasn't the case. It just was adapting to the injuries and and not playing good basketball in that stretch. And every team has had that kind of kind of stretch so uh, yeah I, I think overall coach Woodson's doing a a, a good job uh, and obviously has Indiana poised to to be in the tournament and, and maybe make some noise boy and isn't it interesting to get objective viewpoints like that you know we get so caught yes. up in the moment and look the team was not playing well in that three-game losing streak right there were and as we talked about they had to make adjustments but isn't it interesting to get the objective viewpoint for someone that's like well the guys were still you know playing hard and seemed to be taking coaching and the body language was fine. And that's, you know, stuff that for us, um, you can sometimes overlook because you get so caught up in the immediate result. And then, you know, thinking, you know, what does that mean? Now are we going to lose 10 games in a row? Cause we've been there before, you know? And so I think as a fan base, we're still kind of trying to unwind from some of the PTSD uh, sports PTSD from the past uh, five or six years. That's why it's good Absolutely. to get that objective viewpoint uh, sometimes from someone who doesn't have an ax to grind with the program. And will just give you uh, the good unvarnished truth as they sometimes, see sometimes you're, you're, um, you're not better off for watching every micro second of every game and knowing everything about a program too. Yeah. And then the, the the reverse is true too. Is like you get national opinions and they they turn on a game once every two weeks or read a box score and, yeah. and then you know they give commentary on what's right or wrong with Indiana and they don't have all the nuances that we do, uh, right? And I think 
that it, it's good to get a balance uh, of, yes. of the inside people who who see it and, and know all the little things that are going on and then get that outside like i really you know that's what i like about doing the banner friday with mike DeCourcy. Every, every every friday that i'm on with him there's something to think about you know like today it was officiating you know the yep. officials do a good job that they may be overworked the, the the replay is too much they, they miss some here but you know what players miss shots and players miss passes and they miss defensive assignments and coaches don't call the right plays too there's a lot of things that go into winning and losing a game we focus on the stripes uh and coaching uh an awful lot but i I learn something every time from getting those (laughs) those types of outside opinions i mean you know i thought what happened with larry scarotto in that game was really to me was indicative of kind of this this narrative that we've been talking about with coach woodson and his relationship with Big Ten officials. Because, you know, what prompted him to reach out and touch Larry is that he was asking for clarification on something, and Scroto just walked away from him and wouldn't even listen to him. Now, I don't know how to judge that because we didn't see what preceded that. Maybe Woodson berated him for 60 seconds with some of the nastiest stuff that you've ever heard, and he was tired of being disrespected, and so he kept walking away from him. You know, so I, I don't know. And maybe Woodson was just asking him, but it... it that's the thing that is clear to me is Woodson is being disrespected by officials or just having trouble building those kinds of relationships that help Indiana in those moments. Now, does that change the boo-booey call? I have no idea, but it does seem like that's the kind of thing that impacts and leads to the technical like that. I mean, Woodson needs to not touch the guy. The official should talk to him, but maybe there's a backstory there that we don't know. And that backstory, I think, has maybe a little bit more impact than we think sometimes. First of all, as an assistant coach, you should never get a technical. Never. You've got to be in better control. I don't care if it was right, wrong, indifferent. Uh, I've been a head coach. I would go ballistic if any of my guys did that. Um, I've been told as an assistant to sit down. I don't want to hear anymore. Uh, I had that in, the, in our sectional win in 2020, and, and I got a look from my head coach, like enough, you know, uh, uh, enough. And and sometimes as an assistant, you get caught up, and it was the same thing. I'm like, that's a travel, you know. But you got to know your role, uh, and you can't get so caught up. That cost us a game. I, I know there were other things, and I just got done saying, you know, there's many things in a game, but that's four points to the coaching staff. Four points to the coaching staff. That's inexcusable. There are times when you want to get a technical for momentum and all of that. I agree with all that. But one, the assistant should never get a a, a technical for any reason. And two, as a head coach, you can't touch an official. I don't care if you're asking for clarification or whatever. You cannot touch an official. And to say that that shouldn't have been called because he was just, I'm not saying you're doing that, but I've heard people, oh, he was just asking and he was just politely, no, you no, touched it should have been official. called. Right. And, 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 and so that, that, the first technical was bad. And then, you know, there's ways of trying to get, te- can I talk to you? Can I talk to you? If officials are walking away from you, there is an issue with the relationship, whoever's fault it is, whether it's, you know, I, I think, the, you know, good old Larry's got a little problem, to be honest with you. And I'm not a big fan of all officials because yeah. I think they can get egos just as well. But coaches can get egotistical too. Um, and, and, and I do think that there is an issue. I don't think it affects calls. I, I'm a firm believer. I know a lot of officials. I, I don't think they're well, – what it does is it gets you tense. Uh, if a relationship is tough and there's some tension there, 
you know, you're going to be quicker to a T maybe, or you're going to be quicker to walk away and not listen. And if you listen, maybe you can see something a little different. And, you know, if you're, if the guys were, you know, treating you decently and, and vice versa, uh, then so be it. But there are some officials that you just can't, you just can't stand and don't do a good job. And Larry might be one of them, right? I mean, there just <laughs> are where you're not going to be nice to them. You're going to call them every name in the book and, um, but uh, that was that was not good uh, on the coaching staff at, at, at all. That you you can't you can't do that other than to motivate your team or protect your team. And it, and a travel that's not you know if, if a kid's beating up on you and you're not getting any calls for eight minutes and you want to protect your player and you go overboard, I have no problem with that and get a technical if you're the head coach. But that sequence was not good on the IU yeah. coaching staff. No, I agree. I didn't all. have a problem with getting a technical in that moment because I thought the officiating was really bad for the first you know ten minutes of that game. Uh, but the way it happened with an assistant getting one, and then you essentially right. getting one for touching the official, which now he's giving you a tech, but he's not going to. He's not listening to what you say. Now the point is right. gone anyway. That's where the actual execution was of it uh, didn't work out very well. Uh, okay, let's hit a few of these other ones uh, here quickly from Alex. Who are the Hoosiers on each of your IU basketball Mount Rushmores? What would it take for TJD the rest of the way to be considered among those names? And I asked him, it's not like personal favorite players, but like in terms of meaning and impact to the program. Do you want to go first, Coach? Well, yeah, but it's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of hard. Like you have favorite players, right? It is hard. Like I don't know if Quinn Buckner was the best basketball player, but is he Mount Rushmore? Right. Obviously, Calbert Chaney. Can we just agree that that's? I mean, with the points he you scored, me? And, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, I'm, I'm just saying it's obviously right. That's one. Right. I think uh, so. Isaiah Thomas has to be the second. I think so. Uh, because of the champion, Steve Alford, third, winning the championship. I think right? so. Right. So now we're down to one more. Like, how do you do this? It's torturous. Yeah, I great mean, question. The, I'm not making fun of the question. It's just torturous to answer. No, well, it's so nice. I think it's we gotta, have such a great history that it three, makes it right? hard. Yes, and that's why we're a blue blood. I don't care what anyone says about what we've won later or not. We're a blue blood. When you have this kind of problem, uh, and, and it's not just Mississippi State putting a Mount Rushmore up either. You know, you know what I mean. Um, it's Indiana basketball. It's hard, but those three, right? Where, yeah, where, I mean, where do we go for the fourth? The way I looked at it, I mean, I think Isaiah is the best player, college and pro, right. that Indiana's ever had. So he's got to be on there. Calvert's the top scorer. Even though he didn't win a championship, he got to the Final Four, won Big right. Ten titles. So I think he earns a spot. Steve Alford is the second leading scorer and probably the most recognizable icon, right? Like when, when a lot of right. people think about Indiana basketball, they think of Steve Alford. Uh, so I think he's got to be there. But then... You know, the the most iconic time period for IU basketball is the 75-76 team. You have to have someone from that team on there. And so I think, you know, Quinn was the heart and soul. You could go with him. But I, I would go with Scott May because Scott May was the yep. best player on those teams. Yep. Now, you're leaving off a I ton, agree. right? Like Walt Bellamy was an amazing player. Absolutely. Bill Garrett, you know, his meaning is so much. Right. Don Schlunt, you know, won a title. So you've got... So when you talk about how does a guy like Trace get there, if Indiana wins a Big Ten title and a national title this year, Trace might get in that conversation. But I think that's the only way. Um, yes. Trace has been phenomenal. You know What he's doing this season is definitely one of the best individual stretches of basketball we've ever seen. 
just considering the impact on both ends, impact on winning games, all of that. But that isn't what his career has been for three years. And at a school, despite being in the wilderness for a couple of decades, that still is defined by winning and championships, he hasn't done that. And I don't think that's a knock on him. Um, It's more a recognition of how much greatness this school has had. So I think, I think Trace has to, I mean, essentially hang a banner to start getting into those conversations, but that doesn't mean that he hasn't jumped up two or three levels this season. Cause I think he has, you know, I think he's, he's putting himself in the, the Yogi Ferrell type range. Right. Um, And that is, that's a good place to be at a school like Indiana. I like Quang a lot for a lot of reasons. He says, need, need, need a Mount Rushmore with 20 faces. <laughs> yeah, and like Dr. Trump, yeah. George McGinnis, right? I mean, he's It's a whole mountain range. It's a yeah. mountain range. Why do we have to just settle for four? <laughs> That's right. The IU mountain range of faces. Quang's Qua- yeah. a genius, man. I- I'll tell I, you what. I, I agree. I need, I need to buy Quang a beer. Do uh, you drink beer, okay. Quang? Well, he will now. Answer that in the chat. <laughs> Uh, okay, from Glenn. Was the first half against Northwestern an anomaly, or is this a legitimate concern for the rest of the season? I mean, that's kind of what this team has done away from home. Now, at yeah. home, they've come out and started games well. On the road, they've struggled. Whether it's with focus, whether guys are pacing themselves, whether you know the, they haven't had the right game plan, have needed to adjust it. Uh, I think it's happened enough that it's not an anomaly, and it is a concern because our most important games for the rest of the season – I mean, look, we have three very important home games. We need to win all those games. But as you start looking towards the tournament, there's no games at Assembly Hall there. And so that that needs to get better away from home. Every team relies on their number one score and their number two score, no matter what your scheme is, right? Um, Indiana has an over-reliance, a heavy reliance on number one and number two. And number three, four, and five pop every once in a while. So with that philosophy and with our roster as it is, I think we are vulnerable to very good games, very long runs of great basketball, and we're also uh, vulnerable then to the to the, to the really bad stretches of offense when other teams are prepared and good coaches and their defense is is on par and clicking and forcing us into turnovers. We I don't think the roster as as deep without X. Uh, as we would want it to be, to where we're really going to punish people uh, for paying attention to one or two. So I think, you know, boy, when it's clicking, it's the first half against Purdue, 50 points, you know. Uh, but when it's not clicking, I, I, we just have that variance. And right. I, and that's something that has been hard for me to get used to. I don't necessarily like it, but it is it is the philosophy of our head coach, who is a good general manager. And, and I, I've told you guys a lot, I'm trying to get to the point of, where I don't necessarily like some of the stuff, but he's doing a good job. Um, but I do think that's an honest reflection of our offense. And despite that, we've gone from, like you said, 90 to what, 20th now, 1920, right 20, yeah. 23rd right now. It's fallen a little bit in the, because of these last four games, I think, are pieces of these last four games. It was up to 18 or, or yep. so in Ken Palm, uh, if I was correct. So I just think that's a design. And until the roster has a little bit – more to it, uh, I, I think, you know, and unfortunately that could come up to bite us in, in a Big Ten tournament game or an NCAA tournament team uh, when, when you have the talent and the coaches that are equal. Um, yeah, I, I just think that's yeah. part of who, who Indiana is right now. 
All right, a couple others here from Glenn. Given the remaining schedule for all teams vying for a double buy in the Big Ten tournament, how likely is it that Indiana captures one of those four spots? So I went through and looked at the schedules, and Indiana definitely has you know probably the toughest road of anybody there. You know, with five uh, teams that are all you know still vying for NCAA tournament spots. I mean, Illinois, Purdue, Iowa are pretty much locks. Is Michigan State a lock for the tournament at this point? Yes. Well, okay. virtual lock. I mean, they can't lose five games in the first game in a Big Ten tournament. Yeah. But they're they're in a six, seven, eight seed range, and with the bubble the way it is, they're they're going to have to really suck down the stretch to yeah to not make it. And you know, and the thing is, a lot of the other teams, you know, it's like Illinois still gets to play Ohio State, and who has just been terrible. You know, Rutgers still gets to play Minnesota. Now, you know, Rutgers, for example, has three road games, so. You know, each team, you know, has its its difficulties coming up, um, but Indiana's is as tough as anybody's. So, you know, trying to predict what the actual records are going to be, who knows <laughs> with this conference. But if you just look at the Ken Palm projections, which are probably as reliable as anything that we would toss out, you got Purdue at 15 and five. They are clearly the odds on favorite to win the Big Ten unless they just totally collapse. Uh, and then the rest of the Kempon predictions has Northwestern, Indiana, Maryland, and Iowa all finishing at 12 and eight. Uh, and so some of that could be determined by tiebreakers. Indiana would not do well in a tiebreaker against Northwestern nor Maryland since we lost both of those games. We also lost to Iowa. So we'll have to beat Iowa coming up. Um, you know, so we'll see maybe Indiana, you know, is able to get one of those. Maybe they get squeezed. Um, but I think it's pretty clear. Indiana's going to need to win three of these next five to put themselves in a position to get one of those double buy spots. And three of the games are at home, so I think that's a fair expectation. Uh, Illinois was projected at eleven and nine. Michigan State projected at eleven and eight, simply because the game against Minnesota that was canceled hasn't gotten rescheduled yet, and so isn't in the Ken Palm projections. Rutgers eleven and nine. Michigan ten and ten. Wisconsin nine and eleven. So it is very bunched up. Um, if someone gets hot, like if Wisconsin gets hot and they've got three home games uh, and road games against Michigan and Minnesota, you know those are all winnable games for them. It's going to be interesting. It feels like so much of the Big Ten season has been played and so much is decided, and then you start looking at these schedules, and it's like, holy crap, we could finish second or ninth still, <laughs> you know, depending on how the rest of this goes. So every game is really important, um, starting with Saturday, you know. So win that one, and you can you can feel a lot better. Um, but, you know, Indiana's going to have to win some games and keep doing some work here, uh, you know, to, to finish strong, which leads us into Seth's question. Coach, if IU goes three and two in its last five games, wins at home, loses on the road, and finishes twelve and eight, how should they be evaluated relative to preseason expectations? What well, do you think? To, to preseason expectations, slightly less than what we expected, uh, because we never really challenged for the Big Ten title, and we were picked by everyone across the country to be Big Ten, but. We didn't predict injuries either, you know, so I think that's the big factor. So that's why I say slightly less than preseason expectations. But if you would have told me that you're going to lose your two point guards for a variety of number of games and be down to one point guard and have race Thompson out and then come back and really struggle to see us at this level of, of getting maybe 12, 11 or 12 big 10 wins. I think the season is a success. Uh, I don't think it has to be, you know, sweet 16 or final four for, for me to consider it a success, but I think it's a little less than what we thought. We thought, you know, uh, it would be a little bit easier path to being up there to challenging whoever, 
uh, rose up to be the number one challenger. We didn't expect it to be Purdue. Um, but to preseason expectations, a little less. But we have to be f- really fortunate for Coach Woodson to do what he's done and the players to step up uh, to be in this position where I think Selection Sunday is going to be comfortable for the first time in, what, five years? Yeah. Um, and, and I'm going to try to really, really appreciate that, even though I think the season could have been better. But control your controllables. I tweeted that out. Uh, yep. Injuries, sometimes you can't control um, when, when they happen and how they happen. And I think the response of the program has been very, very, very positive, both on the court and off the court and how they've handled it. And that's what I would want from a school that I, I cherish so much. Yeah, and that's, you know, man, that's why these next five games are so important. I mean, they've done a lot of work. They've really battled through injuries. And now you're getting close to the finish line and you want to win these games because, I mean, look, if they, you know, collapse and struggle and go one and four down the stretch and then struggle in the Big Ten tournament and there's still a chance, just like last season turned around so quickly at the end, you know, and you turned major disappointment into at least clearing the bar for success. It's not impossible for the inverse to happen this year because this team does walk a tightrope sometimes with the way that they play. And so that's kind of my lingering nervousness, but also they've won eight out of 10. They've won in different ways. They've proven that I think we can trust them at home. And so, you know, I do feel pretty confident three and two does seem very reasonable. Um, but I'd be lying if I said that there wasn't just a little twinge of worry, you know, with how many minutes we're playing these guys and with the margins like they are and the teams that we have to play, Indiana could lose any of those games, you know, just based on who the teams are, even at home. So you know, I, I just I really want to see the team finish this season strong and, and you know, take that next step forward and see Trace get rewarded for how well he's played and all the guys. And so hopefully that's what happens. Exactly. Um, but you got to play the games. And so we will see. Last question, coach from Phil. Is it too early to predict the all Big Ten team, all defense, all freshmen? Will the Big Ten get a team to the final four? Lots of questions from Phil. He only paid for one. So but. He threw he threw four in there. So. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I I think I think there's still too much basketball to be played for some of those you know decisions. I think there's obviously players like TJD and Edie that will be on. I mean, they're solidified their spot. But when you Probably get down Jaylen to the, Pickett the last, too. yeah, Jalen Pickett. So you might be close to having the first team uh, selected. But I think those others, you know, with five games, there's still there's front runners. I would think for a lot of those, but, um, and, and it's matchups. I know P I know that's reporter speak or bracketology speak that it's matchups until you see the matchups and the path that big 10 teams have. I think there's some teams that are, are capable. Um, I'm starting to think Purdue's not as capable. Um, and that's not just my anti Purdue, uh, bias, but, um, I think the athleticism is starting to catch up uh, to them a little bit. And and so I I look at the Michigan State's Indiana's and Illinois, uh, and maybe outside chance Iowa if they pop and get hot, are the teams that are most likely for me to make a, a run from the Big Ten. Yeah, I would like to believe in Maryland because every time you watch them at home, they look like a Final Four team. But we haven't seen them do it away from home. And by the way, you know another name for first team All Big Ten to pay attention to is Jameer Young from Maryland. He's actually in the top 10 in the Ken Palm player of the year Raider and is really having a good season. 
Um, but I agree with you. It's still outside of, I think Edie, Trace, and Pickett are pretty well solidified. And then, you know, we'll see. Uh, Big 10, the all freshman team, I think certainly Jalen will be on it. Whether he's freshman of the year, you know, I think Bryce Sensabaugh has kind of fallen off since Ohio State can't win a game anymore. Um, you know, and Purdue's freshmen have both played a huge role on a really good team, but they've been really up and down, you know, so, so we'll see um, what happens with that. As for all defense, you know, I'm sure you're going to look to some of the Rutgers guys to get on there and, and some of those. Trace, because of his block rate, um, yeah. and just impact as a rim protector will probably get there, which I think is perfectly fair. Uh, also, you know, he's been a great defensive rebounder, um, but we'll see, you know, that's probably the only other guy, uh, you know, I'm not sure that Trey Galloway quite gets the, the, you know, the, the attention, uh, to be a guy, uh, like that. Um, but maybe that, that would be something that he could do next season. All right, coach. Well, that uh, pretty much covers all the questions. Another fun day of talking IU basketball for our community members and also for those of you who are listening on the podcast feed. Uh, once you've listened to this, if you're looking for more IU basketball content, I just saw an episode from Crimson Cast pop up. So check out our friends uh, at Crimson Cast. Actually, they've had, they had a new one pop up today and then two Bracketology episodes. Galen brought back the Bracket Racket show. Uh, so there's a lot in the Crimson Cast feed, our friends at the Back Home Network, and then, of course, our friends at Inside the Hall with Podcast on the Brink. Uh, had Tony Adranya on doing a mailbag episode. So a whole lot of content for you here on Friday night and Saturday leading into, into Saturday's game against Illinois. Uh, final question for you, coach. What is your gut feeling about what we'll see on Saturday against Illinois on the Ryan Phillips approved 11 o'clock central tip time? Yeah. Uh, I, I expect Indiana to win their home games. Uh, I, I just do. I, I'm at that point. Uh, anything short of that, I think, you know, will be, uh, I'm just not ready to say that, you know, we're in a funk or anything like that. I think we've demonstrated coming back after losses. I, I think Indiana has demonstrated that they're real tough at home. Uh, anytime you play an opponent the second time, you're looking for the adjustments. Uh, how are they going to guard people? We talked about that earlier tonight. So that's something that I'll be looking uh, for. I'm interested to in getting down there. I, I will be at the game tomorrow uh, if anyone's around and, and sees sees me say hello. Um, but that's that's the key, I think, is to can Illinois defend – and if they defend the same way, can we have the – is TJD got the energy, the juice to play that type of uh, of game? But I do expect Indiana to win. I think it will be a little closer, obviously, than it was at Illinois. I look for a six- to eight-point win where we have to nail it down in the last minute with some free throws. Uh, we did just get one more mailbag question in. It looks like it's from Jay. He wants to know if you're going to be at the game as IU media or if you'll be down by the Illinois bench holding water uh, and wiping sweat off of the seat for Brad Underwood. Um, <laughs> both. Both. I'm going to be uh, assembly call media, and uh, I'm going to be Brad hovering uh, through the, through the uh, basement of assembly hall trying to have an accidental run-in with my guy, Brad Brad. Brad. Hey Brad, it's me, Coach you, Tom. Brad. Love, yeah, Coach Tom loves you. Let's go, Duke. <laughs> my my inner Coach K. Let's go. Uh, my my hope my hope my hope is for Jay to 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 understand that there's nuanced ways of looking at basketball besides just the you know crimson colored glasses that he wears <laughs> every every week. So. 
I think next year when we do our meetup, we're going to sell tickets to Bracketology After Dark with Coach Tonsoni and Jay Horry. Just come hang out with us up in the upper level at the Crazy Horse at 1 o'clock in the morning <laughs> yeah. and get your Bracketology fix. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's, uh, it's worth the price of the ticket. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. All right, everybody. Thank you for being here. Once again, check out the community Have a good weekend, assembly. everybody. Yeah, com slash community. We're not, we won't continue doing the Banner Fridays um, in the main feed. Uh, but like I said, we wanted to do it because we didn't have assembly call radio. Uh, and the, the free trial is going to end next week. So hop on that now. Again, you'll get access to the community through the tournament um, before you ever get charged. And that'll give you a chance to decide. But I think if you get in there and check it out and hang out with some of the, the people in there and see the level of, uh, of analysis that we give, we hope that you'll be uh, intrigued enough to, uh, to stay. So assemblycall.com slash community. And we will talk to you all again tomorrow. We'll be back soon uh, after the Illinois game for the postgame show. Take care, everybody. Uh, Keep your elbows in and your eyes on the rim. And go Hoosiers. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro. Cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.